Hello, and welcome back once again to the HR Social Hour Half Hour Podcast. This is episode 51. John and Wendy talk to Jonathan Siegel. I'm your host, John. And I'm Wendy. How's it going, John? Well, we're having some fun tonight. True to the spirit of podcasting, uh, we had some shenanigans with our uh, recording devices, and so we're yeah. this is take two, and <laughs> we're going to make it work. We know our guest is still at the office and don't want to take a lot of his time. Do want to mention quickly, this show comes out right before our next monthly chat. Yes, it does. And uh, as our tradition, our you know one-year anniversary, whatever you want to call it, every year in January, I think we're going to start talking about goals, resolutions, whatever you want to call what you do at the beginning of the year when you set out to decide what you're going to do in the new year. So we, uh, that's what we want to talk about. And uh, we'll have some questions, as always, to help guide that conversation. We do have a resolution for 2019 to have a chat every month. Right, John? That's right. And for those of you that don't listen all the way to the end, which we know happens, fourth Sunday of every month, even December this year, yep. 7 p.m. Eastern time, find us on the Twitter, talking about our chats, we love the conversation. It's how we started this whole thing. And so, yeah, absolutely. It is our second annual uh, year year kickoff conversation. But enough talk yep. about chats and a, yes. chatting about chat. want to get our guests on and talking and excited that we were finally able to make it happen. So, Wendy, I'll let you make the introduction and we will get started. I am uh, super excited to welcome Jonathan Siegel uh, to the show tonight. He and I have been uh, chatting and uh, sharing things uh, for a while and got to meet in person at uh, SHRM 18, which was just fantastic. Uh, Jonathan is a management attorney, writer, and public speaker. His passions include animal rescue, Holocaust remembrance, and Bruce Springsteen. He is a radical centrist helping him out here because he is an attorney. We're not giving any legal advice out here tonight, so don't think of it. Don't even think it. Jonathan, welcome to the show tonight. And our first question, what's in your glass? Thank you. (laughs) Thank you both very much. I'm really happy to be with you tonight. So what's in my glass? Coffee. (laughs) (laughs) What's always in my glass is coffee. It's a very sad state, but I don't want to be lawyery, but like, you know, a lawyer without coffee doesn't work. I love we, it. We've, Jonathan, we've had all kinds of answers. I, I, I don't know if anybody has said coffee, so that's we, yeah. we appreciate that. Hopefully it's warm, well, I, or, or if it's supposed to be cold, that it's cold. <laughs> no, it's cold, but just working through an issue with an employee that was having Jack Daniels at work, that would not have been a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's, another, that's another story for another time, because I know we yes. could all probably tell one of those. But Jonathan, you know, it, like we said, we're really glad we were able to to have you take part in the show and it's been a lot of fun kind of watching especially seeing your perspective on employment law how exactly did you get started kind of on that path it's kind of a question i ask myself every day um (laughs) i knew kind of growing up i wanted to be a lawyer because i used to argue a lot i argue a lot less as a lawyer than i did before i became one (laughs) i wasn't sure either it was employment law or health law I wanted something where there was room for some social conscience in working as part of the system. And I found myself very interested in employment law because there seemed to be so many societal issues that society, I'll be apolitical, wasn't solving. So employers had no choice but to solve them and always kind of believed in the view, either you're part of the problem or part of the solution. So 
it seems like employment law, there's all different parts of it, but you, you can make a difference if you help make workplaces more respectful and safe, if you ensure pay equity uh, and compensation, obviously, you know, whole so- sorts of areas. So I think I was, I like the analysis part, and I also like the fact that you could make a difference. So that's what attracted me to employment law. I need to tell you that, but for HR, I would have, my goal was to practice law one year and then be a professor at a law school. I started the last day possible at my law firm and was going to leave January afterwards so I could have three years on my resume. But then I found out I really liked it, so I stayed. <laughs> I bet you would be a great professor, though. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I think I would enjoy the dialogue, but I like results. And um, maybe, maybe, but I, I, I'm very fortunate. I love what I do. And yes. I love the HR part of it. I think a lot of lawyers can get, can, you know, sometimes people ask the question, is it legal? And I'm grateful that the HR community has sort of adopted me because a lot of times I'll say it's legal, but is it human? Is it right? Is that the way you want to treat people? And sometimes the answer is it's lawful, but it's abominable. So don't go there. Well, and it goes right into kind of our, our first question, you know, being that socially conscious person. At Sherm 18, you gave a smart stage presentation on male allyship. And uh, I think I still have it out on YouTube. So maybe we'll have to link you it do. in the show notes. <laughs> So what is one thing white men should do in 2019 to be better allies to women and people of color? You know, it's a it's a great question because I've been thinking a lot about it and I struggle with the word ally, but I can't come up with a better word. It shouldn't be that you're assisting someone. It really is an alliance where both parties, you know, both where women and men alike have a vested interest and an obligation to ensure there's equality. So for me, um, when I think of 2019 and being a man who cares a great deal about ensuring there's gender equality, my personal focus and where I think a lot of men need to focus is making sure, you know, we say if you see or hear harassing behavior and you ignore it, you're complicit. I want to take it into a different a different area. If you see men avoiding women for fear of harassment claims, or that's the reason they give, and you ignore it, you're complicit. Oh. I think a critical part of what men need to do is stand up and say some of this talk about, well, anything I do can get me in trouble, so I'm just going to avoid the problem by avoiding women. That's nonsense. Most of those men weren't mentoring and providing opportunities to them before. They now just have a convenient cover. I think that we need to take people where they are. There is anxiety, and we shouldn't dismiss it, but we shouldn't indulge it either. We should talk about what are safe and appropriate ways to break bread, to go out for dinners where it's appropriate to socialize, to mentor, to travel. And to me, that's going to be the key issue in 2019 one of the key issues as a male as as a man not only making sure that i continue to do what i believe is appropriate um, and that is mentoring and learning a lot from doing it making sure that there aren't doors and open with women and closed with men but if i see it with colleagues or i see it in clients to call it out respectfully but directly 
and especially it's a, a lot to chew on yeah <laughs> that's great thank you <laughs> well you know it's 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 it was it was a foreseeable it's a foreseeable result that people and in, and in some cases you know i think some men are raising the fear of harassment as sort of a pretext for not doing what they didn't do before but there are some men who legitimately are saying, I'm not sure what's okay. Mm -hmm. And I've seen men do things that I thought were okay and get in trouble. So it's really navigating the gray. Navigating the gray doesn't mean avoiding people. It means being a little more thoughtful about what you do and how you do it and having more open dialogue about it. Jonathan, you started to talk briefly about pay inequality and equity and we obviously know that that's a topic that's been around for quite a time, and, and it seems like it's gained some momentum, especially when uh, time's up. And what do you think's changed in that little bit of time? And continue? Are we seeing real changes when it comes to pay practice? One, I think we're seeing changes for a number of reasons. Number one, even if there were no laws, and I'm not someone that thinks there shouldn't be, I think there should be. There's a town imperative that to me eclipses the legal obligation. If you don't pay women, people of color in an equitable way, you're gonna lose the talent they bring to the organization. You also may get sued. But to me, the focus really needs to be, you wanna treat people equitably because A, that's the right thing to do. B, it's not necessary for attraction, retention of talent, and C, to avoid legal risk. I'm one of those lawyers that puts the law last. It's a nice incentive for some employers for some to do what's right. But even if it weren't a legal risk, because not everything is going to be a legal claim, you're going to lose talent and therefore not be successful in your mission. I think it does tie very much into the Me Too movement, which is speaking up. You want a safe place now where you can work and achieve your goals. And then when you achieve them, you want to get paid equitably for them. And when people feel more comfortable speaking up, they speak up about other things, not just sort of an existential, I don't feel safe, but I want to, on a sort of hierarchy of needs, make an equitable amount of money too. So I think we're seeing that as sort of a logical outgrowth of the Me Too movement relative to harassment. And employers should not wait for employees to speak up. Employers yes. should look at the issue head on. It's always remarkable to me. I look at some of, I should strike that. It's not remarkable, but it's a good reminder to me. The clients that I see, and you know, I'm a recovering litigator, a lot of time in recovery. When I used to litigate, there were so many times where someone would say it's not illegal, but I'd say, yeah, but it's unfair. And they'd say, well, that's not illegal. And now we go around in circle. And then <laughs> I would begin to think of whether it would be Paris or London by the time they were done the argument. But the <laughs> bottom line is, do you want to spend money on legal fees or do you want to spend money on doing what's right by your employees? Now, not every pay, not every pay differential is due to an unlawful practice or is unfair. Um, and there are times where employees think things are unfair or illegal and they're not. But I think it's really helpful for employers to look at it both systemically, and that can be with the micro with a statistical analysis that will get too into the weeds, but also even beyond that, looking at your systems and see where they may perpetuate inequities. No, I think that's true. And I, I like how, I like where you put it, that we need to stop waiting around for people to ask. We need to look and be proactive with this and make sure that you are paying people properly and fairly 
because there's a lot of people that don't feel comfortable asking or having those conversations. You're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. And there's a fear that if I ask, how will I be seen? So, you know, many employers are doing audits. There are complicated issues there. This is kind of sad. Their employer should do audits for purposes of making sure that there is equity and then the audits are used against them in litigation. That's a problem with the solution. You do it under privilege first, but then so you can rely on it, you run the after you make your corrective act you do it again outside of privilege and take a corrective action based on that without admissions. So there's ways to go. Do a lot of, I've done a lot of thinking about that, but you have to do it carefully because do not want to generalize or a lot of good people on the both sides of the labor management bar, the employee management uh, bar, but there are lawyers that will take advantage of efforts that employers make to do the right thing. So you have to be thoughtful about how you do the right thing. Yeah, that's so true. Jonathan, you are also a big supporter of volunteering and especially with animal rescues, um, humane societies, love your posts with, of you with there when you're showing your, yourself volunteering and covered in cats and, <laughs> and cat hair and dog hair and everything else with that. And, and kind of as you, you talked about too, being socially responsible is important to you and it's becoming more important to a lot of people. And we want to see that in the businesses that we work at and the businesses that we support. So how can employers help encourage their employees to volunteer? And what are some of the mistakes that you've seen employers make around this? Well, first of all, Wendy, I have to mention that if you're anywhere near Montgomery County SPCA in, Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania, even if you're not, there's a really sweet white cat. His sister was adopted. He's very unhappy. I spent yesterday with him, and I need to get him a home. So, I, you know, uh, stay, but putting that aside, I, I won't. I won't go on any longer. Uh, you know, it's I wanted to say one thing, and that is, I know some of it is physiological, some of it not just psychological. But when you do for others, if it actually makes you feel good and um, re-energizes. I, if I have a long, hard week, sometimes people say, boy, I bet you want a day off. I'm like, no, really doing something nurturing and helping and knowing that um, I don't say I would speak for animals, they speak, we're just not capable of understanding fully that it's, you know, sometimes who rescues whom. But I think in organizations, one of the best things that you can do is, one, give employees time. I have a number of clients, I take no credit for the idea, but I take pride in what they do. They give employees a volunteer bank. So there are a certain number of hours, if they're exempt days, that they can volunteer and they get paid for them. And it doesn't need to be a large number, but it's something that employees know that the organization values giving back. And it's one way it does is by paying the employees that don't have to use vacation time. That's one way of doing it. One area where I've seen employers get into trouble is where the employees get paid more. They don't get time off, but they potentially get paid more if they volunteer and it goes into their evaluation. Well, if it's arguably something they're doing for which they get compensated, then is it actually something they're 
arguably required to do, and does that lead into compensable time under the FLSA? Seen the argument raised. So I'm not big on saying that we're going to evaluate you on it, but I am big on saying that we're going to give you the opportunity to do it. Um, I don't want people to do it. To me, if someone's doing it for a good evaluation or for extra money and they're not doing it for the right reason, and I'd rather not give them the money, I want people to do it because it's in their heart and their soul. So I think the way to do it is to give people the time off without economic consequence. That, to me, is the best approach. A hospital I worked for in Montana, we always did a United Way day. So the whole city did it, and we were given a place to go, and uh, we went to one of the um, animal rescues one year. Right. And I'm pretty sure we went home, people went home with at least three dogs. I know three yeah. dogs got adopted from that. So <laughs> it, It's wonderful. When I, when I give talks, I usually have one dog and one cat at the end of my PowerPoint. If I'm in, and I pick wherever I am, at least I try to. Oh. So, the, you know, from that shelter, pick the oldest or the ones that are there the longest. Yeah. And then, you know, it's a, it takes 10 minutes. You can't save every life, but to save one is to save that creature's universe. So it's a wonderful feeling. So it doesn't have to always be the big stuff. There's there's room for it. And I think that goes to culture. And I know on some of your um, podcasts, you talk about culture, but a culture, to, this is to me part of a culture where people can be themselves. Um, there are certain things you need to do to get your job done, but we want to encourage diversity and diversity also includes an interest. And there are different ways that people get back to a community. And one way is through supporting nonprofits of various sorts. Well, Jonathan, it is now time for everyone's favorite part of our show, the Half Hour Question Connection. And it is now new and improved. So you are the okay. very first person to get these questions. Do you feel privileged? Uh, I, feel, I, I, feel, I feel very good. I feel very good. But can I ask you one question, Wendy? Sure can. Will you yeah. adopt my cat? You have such a big heart. <laughs> No cats allowed in my house. I'm sorry. Oh, that, that, that's a shame, John. <laughs> we, we, we Anybody listening? We have one already. We will, we will put All it right. in the <laughs> Yes. I love it. All right. So, Jonathan, first question. Who was your first professional mentor, and what was the most important or impactful thing you learned from him or her? From a professional standpoint, the first me professional mentor – I had was the judge for whom I clerked, Judge Norma Shapiro. And, you know, a lot of times women talk about how, what an honor it is to have a woman mentor. I can say as a man, I'm so proud that my, I feel so fortunate that my first mentor was a woman because one of the things I learned from her was I watched the bias that she experienced. And I watched how she dealt with it with strength, calmness, determination. She never let the bias define her, nor did she ignore it. Um, that she was, by the way, one of another one of many reasons why I was very interested in employment law, particularly because of my belief that bias does exist in myriad forms and that hopefully I could play some role in some companies in eradicating it. So my first my first uh, mentor was Judge Norma Shapiro, respected her um, second to none, 
cared for her second to none. And I think what I really learned from her was problems are going to exist. No matter who you are, you may have obstacles. Don't ignore them. Don't let them stop you, but don't let them define you either. Jonathan, who's one person that you've gained in your network over the last year that you think more people should know? I want to be, am I allowed to be snarky for a second? Sure. There's a cat that's in my network <laughs> right now. Um, <laughs> I also, by the way, I want you to know, for 13 years I've been working with cats that have never gotten bit, never gotten scratched. A husky and I, three weeks ago, were hugging. I got such a, he wouldn't let go, so I, I held his face. He held mine. I now have husky nose. Um, who would I say <laughs> in the network that I know recent? It has to be someone recent, right? Yeah, some, yeah, somebody in the last year or so. Somebody that you don't that more people should know about. Anybody? Barry Weiss from the New York Times. I really like her. I put in, in my Twitter profile a radical centrist. Um, my politics actually lean one direction, um, a little more than center. But what I like about Barry Weiss is that she makes you think. She once described herself as intellectually promiscuous, um, and I emphasize the intellectual. She is very thoughtful. Every time I read what she writes, it makes me think. I found her on Twitter, and after I found her on Twitter, I find, which is interesting, other people who like her, the like, and all of a sudden I've met some people due to a common interest in some of what she's written on. She just wrote this week about you know the 92-year-old woman who outran her. Um, I'm not sure if you read that. It was in the Times yesterday. I think she has a wonderful mind and a great human touch. So through her, I've met a number of people, but she's someone I think worth in the social media world following. Very cool. Jonathan, if you could go back to the start of your career, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself based on what you now, what you know now? I have thought about that question. And unfortunately, I know the answer. And I also know I wouldn't follow the advice. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And I don't know how to do a marathon. I only know how to sprint. So um, I think that I, you know, when I started out, I thought, oh, my goodness, it, you know, I don't, because I give a lot of public talks, people think that, well, you folks know differently, but you know, people that make, would make me an extrovert. I love the social scene. I'm actually more introverted than extroverted. So I did a lot of writing and things because I wanted to connect with people through thoughts rather than through maybe booze or things like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That's just not my cup of coffee. And I think I would, I think I would tell myself to be a little think I project confidence, but don't always feel it inside. I, like others, have a little bit sometimes a fear I'll wake up one day and people will realize I don't know what I'm doing. So maybe I would be a little less anxious about that and be a little more internally confident and take it a little bit slower. But that's just not the way I'm wired. I'm always concerned that there's more I don't know and I need to know. And that's not the BS answer. I hate what's your biggest weakness. I, I, I work too hard. I think sometimes over, I think 
there can be a time where you can push yourself too hard. And I push myself sometimes too hard. And that's not, not always for the best. So Jonathan, we know, we know where you stand with cats, but how else do you enjoy giving back when it comes to the HR community? I love nothing more than mentoring. I love listening. I get diversity in terms of identity, but the part of it that's to me most interesting is diversity and experience and perspective and talking with someone who is of the a woman as opposed to a man, someone of color, someone younger, someone older, an immigrant, hearing different experiences they've had that cause me to realizes certain obstacles that exist I don't have, certain things that I would never think twice of doing someone else may do. And on the other hand, there may be things that someone may be afraid to try. And one thing I'm not afraid to do is to try and fail. And you think about it, you know, I was talking with someone, a woman of color, and she made a comment, well, if I did this, people will call me a, I won't use the word, but BB. And I said, well, either you're going to succeed and be called that, or you're not going to do it and you're going to fail. And then they're going to call you something else, whoever, not everyone, but people that I believe are, there are still people with unfortunately conscious, not just implicit bias. So I'd rather be successful and have someone say something negative about me than fail. <laughs> so we talked about it and I said, I would take the risk. But you know what? Go for it. So I, I love, I love mentoring. And one of the things that I love about it is I learn more about obstacles people face. So hopefully in a non-paternalistic way, I can eliminate some of them for others. And I also learn a little bit about myself in the process, things I didn't know about. The more I know about other people's experiences, the more empathic hopefully I can be and a better colleague. So to me, the giving the the giving back, I love occasionally when an HR person, you know, if they work for a client, I need to be obviously thoughtful of the ethics. But when someone will say, can you talk through an issue with me? I don't, people have a right to make a complaint. I don't want to make a complaint, but I don't want to put up with this crap anymore. Do you have any ideas? And I love that. I love trying to help someone that wants to deal with an issue head on, help empower them to do it. Awesome. Jonathan, what is your favorite movie? Okay. Now, I have to just tell you, <laughs> everyone gets I always have my, now which category? My, I have one favorite. <laughs> I have one, I have one favorite. It better not be cats. It's not, no, no. You know, I don't even like the show, Cat. Um, my favorite movie of all time is The Big Chill. I'm going yeah. to obviously not be a millennial when I say that, but it's the ultimate, you know, it's, for those who haven't seen it, among others, Glenn Close and Kevin Klein, people who reunite around the death of a college roommate. I love it because of the depth of the relationships, the questions that it asks. I, probably seen the movie 20 times. I love movies that involve relationships between people with a storyline to boot. And I think it has both. Love the big chill. It's a great one. I think we already know the answer to this, Jonathan, but uh, favorite musician or band? Guy Lombardo. I've always loved, oh, favorite. <laughs> um, 
Well, you know, in in seriousness, it it is Bruce Springsteen because I had on my Twitter, I I have in my bio that he's my workout partner, and people were like, "You work out with Bruce Springsteen?" Not literally. <laughs> it's just I get myself going in the morning on the treadmill to Bruce Springsteen and Bruce Springsteen and Tina Turner. But I got to tell you, I would say Springsteen, but there are a couple others that different genre, but are really close seconds. Nancy Wilson, who just recently passed away, one of the, to me, great, greatest uh, jazz vocalists, or Nina Simone. So I tend to like a lot of the harder rock, like, or not harder rock. I like Springsteen the most, but Nina Simone and Nancy Wilson, they're pretty close seconds. What about uh, on the TV? Any favorite TV shows? One, and this is another one that's easy for me, Mad Men. Every episode was a, not not figuratively, literally a blog of the employment world. I loved <laughs> Mad Men. I've watched that show so many times that I'll take the Fifth Amendment if someone asks me how many. I loved it. I loved it. And a part of the reason I loved it Besides the richness of the employment and the details of the 60s that they captured is because I thought the characters were rich. On the one hand, you have Don Draper, who is, you know, a, a horrible, cheating, womanizing. And yet on some of the issues, he he mentored Peggy. He was the one who told Joan Okay, I'm getting too excited about this show. He did a <laughs> lot of good things in the workplace, in his personal life. He was horrifying. But that's part of what I liked about a lot of the characters in the show. They weren't black and white. They had parts of, of them that was very disturbing and then parts of them that was very redeeming. And although more extreme than probably the average person, I don't think any of, any of us is all of one thing. So I kind of like that about the characters. So, Jonathan, when you're not watching Big Chill, listening to Springsteen, watching Mad Men, I have a feeling I know at least what part of the answer is going to be, but what else do you like to do outside of work? Well, I love to, I love to exercise. So the treadmill is a biggie. I, this is going to go back to the big chill. I love hanging out. There's to me <laughs> no greater joy than hanging out with uh, family or friends without any special occasion. Now, if I could do every single time on, you know, in Paris, that would be, the ultimate, but that's not always so possible. But I love just sitting around and hanging out with someone, meeting someone for coffee. You know, I feel blessed. I still have my mom. We had, we went to see la uh, last Sunday um, Green Room, which, boy, was that good, and having dinner with her. To me, there's nothing I really enjoy more than spending time with people, with family that are friends and friends that are family. That's the biggest joy in my life. Uh, well, our last question, Jonathan, we kind of talked about this a little bit because you talked about going into possibly healthcare or teaching. But if you weren't doing employment law or in the law profession, what do you think you'd be doing? I'd be a therapist. One of my favorite books is While Nietzsche Wept, written by Irving Allen. He's a psychiatrist that writes both fiction and nonfiction. And um, I remember reading that and then starting to do a lot more reading on 
from Freud and his followers and to other kinds of psychotherapy. And look, in HR, aren't we all a little bit of amateur therapists anyway? <laughs> yeah. But I really got interested in understanding more and more systems. You know, you think of family systems and how they're replicated in workplaces. We say under the ADA, we can't, we shouldn't try to figure out what's going on inside. But in reality, a lot of times from a psychological perspective, and I'm not talking about disorders, but to make things work, you got to figure out what's the way not to manipulate people, but to influence people in a transparent way into if, if you're trying to achieve something. And I think to do that, you need to understand yourself and you need to understand other people. So I think if I did anything else, I would love to help people find themselves. I don't think a good, ther I think the, the patient does all or the client does all the work, but I would love to be, I would love to help be that guide. So I think I would be, one thing that I would be, probably would be a therapist. Well, Jonathan, we're we're glad at least tonight that you're not in that realm because if you were, we probably wouldn't be talking to you. So, yeah, uh, we're glad you're doing what you're doing. It, it has been such a joy. I, I know Wendy and I really appreciate not only the time, also the, yes. the fact we got through some of the stressors of our technology failures. Which again, <laughs> it's the podcast uh -huh. overlords making don't they don't want to make it easy all the time. But for those listeners that aren't following you now, that that will want to now that they've heard you with us what's what's the best way for them to reach you out there well on twitter um you know at jonathan underscore hr underscore dot law i gotta give my disclaimer i like posting about hr i like sharing things on leadership i like to have fun <laughs> on twitter i like to yeah. have fun on social media to me i mean there may even be a cat on there when when this when this when this <laughs> When this, tweet, when, I, when this podcast is done, I love looking at and seeing the different parts of people that are not work. So, you know, if someone doesn't want to occasionally see things that have nothing to do with what, you know, the business world, I'm probably not the first person to follow. But that's, that's, but that's, but that's one way to reach me. I'm also on LinkedIn and um, I got out of uh, a couple of the others because I thought, Oh my goodness, I'm living my whole life in social media and not and not in trying to find the balance. So I'm not Instagramming these days, but those but but Twitter Twitter's where I spend most of my social media time and, and I do respond to people. I love the dialogue on Twitter. I love it. Yes. Um, I like it. As long as it's civil, I really enjoy it. We we will put that in the show notes, and we will yep. find something about cats to include as well. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I I do I do want to say one thing. I love dogs too. It's just in the shelters, the cats are the underdogs because there are more of. There's a greater supply of cats often than demand, and there's a greater demand for dogs than there is supply. So any day when we're low on cats, I'm in the dogs. I mean, there's a there's a picture that they took of me, you know, like having to crawl out from behind. I've been in the dog pens plenty of times too. <laughs> so yeah. cats, dogs, I love, I love animals, period. That's awesome. Wendy, what's the, what's the best way for the listeners to reach you? Best way to find me is uh, on my blog, mydailyjourney.com. Daily is D as in dog, A-I-L-E-Y. And just a reminder, fourth Sunday every month in 2019, 7 p.m. Eastern time on Twitter is the hashtag HR social hour Twitter chat. Please join us. We'd love to have you there. 
How about you, John? Easiest way to find me is hrsocialhourpodcast.podbean.com. Click on the left-hand side. There's a, a list of my social contacts while you're there and you're listening to the show. If there's a previous episode you haven't heard, download directly, uh, listen, rate, review, share, everything you can do to help us continue to spread the word. We appreciate Jonathan, again, appreciate being with us tonight. So for the HR Social Hour Half Hour Podcast, I'm John. And I'm Wendy. And as always, be sure to connect, give back, and network. network. Take care, everyone. We'll see you thank soon. You for thank you both for including me so much. <laughs>